name is Stephen, and I have the privilege and honor of pastoring this location, the Northwood Church. And uh, man, it's going to be a great Sunday. Uh, you know, we have started our foundation series here at Northwood Church, and it's week two of that series. And this series is ultimately one way that we feel uh, God is leading us to execute the mission of Northwood Church here in South Mississippi. Our mission is to build Christ-centered communities that help people know God, grow in Christ, and go in the power of the Holy Spirit until Jesus returns. And, and really, what that mission statement is a reflection of is the great commission that Christ gave us before he ascended to be with the Father. And what he told us was that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that he commanded. And so what what we feel like our mission really is is not only a reflection of the Great Commission, but to simply put it, it's that we're called to be disciples that make disciples. And so this series, Foundations, is intended to be a series that helps us lay a foundation in not only the new believer's life, but also re-solidify foundations in existing believers' lives uh, in our discipleship track here at Northwood Church. Now, I'm not sure if we're going to be calling it discipleship track. Uh, that sounds so wooden, right? It might be called next steps track or, or whatever we wind up calling it. But the heart of the matter is, is that we want to lay foundations for discipleship in this community. Now together, this semester, uh, we are actually starting our group semester tonight. How many of you are excited for groups? Yeah. By the way, if you haven't signed up for a group yet, there's still room in certain groups. Uh, we have exceeded capacity in a number of the groups, but, uh, you know, there will be people falling out of windows, and we might have to, you know, pray for healing and like Paul did in the early church. But, um, but there are still room in certain groups, and, and if you'll look in the back corner of the auditorium, you can go sign up and get some more information back there if you'd like. It's a real low-pressure atmosphere. We just want to provide you with the information that you need to make a good decision. Uh, but that being said, we're going to be having discussions about what's taught on Sunday mornings around this foundation series. And so together we're going to be growing in our foundations and our faith. And actually as we get through the end of this semester with the feedback that we'll have working with you through groups and also just having taught these things on Sundays, we're going to have uh, really nailed down the curriculum for our future discipleship track that we're going to repeat in a classroom setting in the future. So this is a really exciting time for Northwood Church, and you're a part of helping us create this discipleship track, which I, th I think is an incredible thing. And uh, I'm, I'm excited for what God's going to do. Now this series, again, is going to explore the foundations of our faith. Right? And we said we are a Christ-centered community. And so as a Christ-centered community, our foundations are, are built on Christ the cornerstone. Now, I talked last week in our opener uh, for this series about Christ being the cornerstone and everything in the building, the church, being built and measured off of him. He is the plumb line. He is the standard. He is our foundation. And, and our mission is to help people know God, to know Christ, to, to know him in salvation, to know him in relationship. And this week is going to help ensure that we either know that we know that we do know him or that we might come to know him for the first time. Now in 1 John chapter 5, John writes to his hearers, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know. There's this confidence in your knowing. That's the aim. And he said, I wrote these things. So what things? Well, we're not going to go back through First John, but if you were to go read it for yourself, it's a quick read. 
And you'll hear all the things that he lays out for the believer to know and understand about salvation and how to be a disciple, how to follow Jesus. And, and so he says, I'm writing these things so that you know that you know. Now, you might have heard people in certain contexts talking about how you don't need to know a whole lot, right, in order to, to know salvation. And, and it is true. In one sense, Jesus can come and completely captivate our hearts. He can capture our minds. He can, he can call us to, to repentance so that we would know him, right? And, and he can do that, you know, miraculously through a dream. But he often and most consistently uses the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel message, the words that are found in the text, being communicated to people. How beautiful are the feet of the people that bring the gospel, right? And, and so he is giving you details, and a lot of people are like, skip the details. And John's over here like, no, you need the details. And so we're going to take some time to give you some details today about how we see God accomplishing uh, us being able to know him personally. And today's word that we're going to explore uh, pretty, pretty you know, closely is this word that's found in the Bible. It's called justification. And this is actually the title of today's message, justification, a changed condition. Now, take note of that word condition in the title for just a moment. Because condition is... is like the condition of our soul. It's the condition of our heart. And as we talk about discipleship, a lot of times we skip to the next step, right? The, the next step that we're thinking about is not condition as much as it is conduct. The things we do, how we behave, the boxes we check. Am I doing what Christ called me to do, right? And we are. We need to talk about those things. The journey of, of our salvation includes this sanctifying process where we're learning to follow Jesus in, in, in some very practical ways. But if we skip understanding what Christ wants to accomplish within our souls in regards to the condition of our soul, all we will have is a religious practice. We won't have a relational, transformative experience with Jesus that actually is an overflow of his grace, an overflow of his mercy and his love and his spirit abiding in us. And that is lifeless, and that's not something I'm interested in. And so we've got to pay attention to the condition of our souls. And so today, again, justification, a changed condition. I want to invite you guys to lean into this message. There's going to be some parts that might feel a little heavy, especially if you're not accustomed to the way that we teach here at Northwood Church. Um, some things, you know, might, might even feel confrontational, uh, but that's what the Word does. That's what the Spirit does. Uh, he, he confronts those things in our soul that need to be confronted so that we can come into alignment with His will for our lives. And, and so I want to go all the way back to the beginning of history, and, uh, and we're going to look at right after God had created the heavens and the earth, and, uh, and he made everything good. God made everything good. As a matter of fact, everything was what, in what we call shalom. Uh, if, you're, if you think about the word shalom, uh, shalom is often thought of as peace, right? But shalom, the shalom of God is so much more than just peace. It's wholeness. It's order. It's where everything is as it should be. Right? You want to talk about where peace in mind comes from. It's when things are in order. It's when things are as they should be. When, when, when does your peace get robbed from you? When things are out of order, when things are not as they should be. And so shalom is so much more holistic than we understand. And, and that, that shalom was not just in regards to creation and the earth and all, but it was in regards to relationship, relationship between the two people in the garden, Adam and Eve, husband and wife. How many husbands and wives need some shalom, right? <laughs> 
And, and, and so you've got shalom between Adam and Eve, but you've got shalom between God and his created people. There's right relationship. And God made people in his, in his image, as image bearers, to reflect his character and his nature, limited though it may be. I mean, he's an infinite God with infinite, you know, attributes and, 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 and beauty and wisdom and all of the things that God is. But still, we reflect that in all the world. And mankind was not only given the responsibility to be an image bearer, but we were given free will. Mankind was given a free will. See, God wanted us to choose love and desire relationship with him. But if he would have made us just automatons that he forced to love him and forced to choose him, it wouldn't have been a choice. It would have simply been us doing what we were programmed to do. No, he wants us to desire him, to worship him. Now, the reality of it is I do believe God and his sovereignty is the one that instigates that in us, that gives us the capacity to actually choose him. And so for those of you that are on either side of that theological debate, I, I want to be really clear that, that God instigates, but we do have the ability to resist what he is instigating in our lives. This is the free will of man. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. They knew him personally. He's in the garden. They're walking in the cool of the day. Right? And, and there's right relationship. There's wholeness. There's shalom. They knew the God of the universe who's infinitely loving, infinitely powerful, infinitely gracious and merciful. They knew him and yet still chose otherwise. How many of us have done that? And sin, when they chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, entered the world. The curse of sin and death not only afflicted Adam and Eve, but afflicted all of Adam and Eve's descendants for all time, all the way down to this very moment, you sitting in this seat, me standing on this pulpit. We're all afflicted by this sickness, this sin. And it's not able to be resolved in the way that other sicknesses in this world may be able to be resolved. It's much deeper. It's much more profound. It's at the core of our soul. It's at the core of our being. In Romans chapter 5, it says this, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Is that confrontational? When the Bible tells you that you sin, that you're a sinner, and that that curse of sin and death that you have experienced that yourself. That's confrontational. So we have this problem. It's the problem that is called sin. Now, I'm not going to unpack this too long. Uh, back in 2019, we preached a series in Romans. We went through the whole book of, of Romans. And if you will go to our YouTube channel, you can go check out uh, Romans chapter 3. And you can also go check out Romans chapter 7 and, and watch those. And those will more clearly articulate uh, this, this sin reality, this sin condition, and also ultimately uh, this issue with the law. And the reason that the law matters is because God is a holy God who has a righteous law that he has established for all people to come into alignment with. And when we violated that law in the garden, Adam and Eve, and us every day thereafter, that breaks relationship with a holy God because he can't be present with the unholy, that which is in violation of his standards and statutes. And, and so sin breaks relationship and intimacy with God. This is a big problem, right? Because we want to be present with God. We want God to be present with us, and sin breaks that. As a matter of fact, i, I got a definition for sin here. It's uh, breaking the law of God or a failure to keep it. 
It's rebellion against God, in other words, disobedience. Or uh, the definition in the scripture that we also find is this archery term. It means missing the mark. So last uh, month, we taught this series called Life Goals, and it was all about aiming to please God with our lives, with the goals that we set in our lives. right? So we're aiming to please God, but when we miss the mark, it's due to sin. That's what sin is. And it is displeasing. And it does separate us. As a matter of fact, sin separates us from God. If you've ever seen the uh, Leonardo da Vinci painting where uh, God is in the upper right corner, I think, and he's kind of reaching out of heaven and the heavenly hosts are behind him. And he's, you know, obviously, you know, an old white guy in, in, the, in the painting. You know, that's, that's the way they saw, saw God. He, long gray hair. Kind of looked like Mark, I think. And, and so, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, and he's reaching out of heaven. Created in his image. There you go. And he's reaching out of heaven. You're the only one, too, apparently. <laughs> and he's reaching out of heaven. And Adam is down in the other corner of the painting reaching back up. And they're reaching their fingers towards one another. And there's this little break between their fingers where they just can't reach, right? And it looks like this small little gap between being able to access God. But it's actually this chasm between where we're at and where God is at. And we ourselves in our humanity literally do not have the power to cross that chasm. We cannot fix the brokenness in our relationship with God. There's a veil between us and God. And only he can remove it. And for some who never surrender their lives to God, they never have that veil removed. And they experience what's considered eternal separation. The Bible describes that pretty clearly as hell. If you go back to our Loving Logic series in uh, our YouTube channel, you'll, you'll see that we actually taught pretty thoroughly around the doctrine of hell just in September. And, and you might want to go back and kind of get a view on how we understand and interpret that. Uh, but it's important that we understand simply that, if nothing else, it is eternal separation from God. But God desires that we know heaven that we know his presence, that we have access to his person and all of his promise. And that's this place of eternally being present with God. And that's what he desires. As a matter of fact, for all people, he desires that, that none should perish. And, and so some of us are sitting here in this room thinking right now, and, and I've, I've thought this way before, by the way, I, I just want to be very honest about that. I didn't grow up in this. I didn't grow up in the church. This isn't like what I've always believed. There was a time where I thought, hey, I'm a good guy. I do good things. I, I, I love people. I'm kind to people, right? I have altruistic heart. I have compassion for people. I'm moral. I'm ethical. I'm all the things that those Christians are supposed to be that oftentimes I find they're not. So I'm just going to do me. I'm going to be moral, and that's my golden ticket to heaven. I got the golden ticket. Because everybody wants heaven, right? But our path to heaven isn't morality. Our path to heaven is not ethics. Our path to heaven is not good behavior because we have this condition of sin. Not just whether or not we're committing sins, but we have this deeper issue, this condition that has to be resolved. And you say, well, not me. Well, Romans chapter 3 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 51, the psalmist says, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin my mother 
conceived me. So there's this testimony from the word of God that says, you are born in sin. You have all, including myself, fallen short of the glory of God. You've all sinned. Not just committed sins like acts, but literally you have sinned like you are sinful by nature apart from the work of God. And sin requires a bigger solution than we can provide. And the wonderful thing is, is that God, from the moment, even before the moment, from the foundations of the earth, he knew that we would do this, that, that this issue would arise. And he had a plan in his infinite wisdom and knowledge and his plan to restore relationship between man and himself. His plan is named Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, incarnate. Jesus is the solution for our sin. The solution for our sin is salvation. And the only way to receive salvation is through Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, Jesus speaks of himself. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No, 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 but Jesus, what about my good works that I do? Nobody comes to the Father except through me. No, 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 but Jesus, I'm moral. All the things that the Old Testament law said that I'm supposed to do, I do those things. I check the boxes. I memorize all the prophecies, all the ancient scriptures. I, all of Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He said, put all that aside. All of that just bears witness to me. I'm the door. I'm the way. I'm the truth. In Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter, uh, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, this is after Pentecost. They're going, and man, God is moving. There's revival happening in the land, right? And, and Peter is preaching in power, and he says, There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's speaking of Jesus. It's only through Christ that we have salvation. And so that hearing that right there is enough. There could be people that don't know Christ, and in a moment, the Holy Spirit can bear witness to that truth, and somebody could say, Jesus, I don't know what it means. I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go, but I believe that you are the way to the Father. Please save me. And that's enough. And, and I believe that God can do that. I've seen him do it in people's lives and, and, and time told over years where they're like, hey, that was my story. That's how it went, and, and I, God's still keeping me. And so God must have done something. But there are some details that are really, really helpful to know about how God accomplishes salvation through Christ Jesus so that when the lies of this world, when the deception of our own heart and our own flesh try to rise up and bear false witness against the truth that is in Jesus, that we can actually resist those lies, that we can resist the devil, and that we can stand steadfastly in the truth that God has given us. So the question then becomes, how are we saved? And I'm going to use some language, even the title of, of today's message, justification, that has this legalese kind of tone to it. It's actually a legal framework that we're talking about. As a matter of fact, all throughout the scripture, we see this legal framework laid out, and that's by God's design. Now, I'm not asking for any confession in this particular realm because we have some officers of the law in here, and I don't want anybody to incriminate themselves, but, it, you know, Many of us have broken the law. I've broken the law, uh, and I don't brag about that. Um, I don't brag about my past. I don't brag about where I come from. I brag about what Christ has done, but I, I do have to acknowledge I've broken the law, and I've been arrested uh, more 
times than I'd like to admit. And in those times when I've broken the law and I've been arrested, the, the question always rises up in my mind, how am I going to get out of this one? <laughs> how am I going to get out of this one? Now, by the way, I do want to mention to you, I haven't been arrested or broken the law, at least in an intentional way. Um, I didn't know I was doing it if I did uh, since I've been saved. Just want to say that, <laughs> especially since I've been preaching, especially this year. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. And so how am I going to get out of this? Well, when you start thinking about the legal system, right, the first thing you got to do is you got you to retain a lawyer. You better get yourself some advocacy, somebody that can help you get out of it, right? And, and then you're like, well, man, well, first I guess I got to bond out. And, and then, man, I know as I'm, dude, if, if, I, if this conviction comes down, right, I've got some fines. I might even have some, some consequences that go beyond financial consequences. I mean, I'm going to have to pay through the teeth on this. And, and the reality of it is that a payment must be made. A payment must be made. And I just am here to tell you that the most costly thing in all of the world that you could ever have to pay in a legal setting is due to the consequence of your sin and breaking or violating the law of God. It's the greatest cost, the greatest expense. As a matter of fact, you need an advocate. His name is Jesus. And what the advocate does is he pleads your case. He's asking the judge on your behalf for forgiveness for you. And he's doing it pro bono. He's not, he's not taking any fee from you. He just wants to see you forgiven. He wants to see you advocated for. And he pays your fine as well. He pays your fine. So he's not just advocating for you. He's literally like, I know you don't have the money. I know you don't have the resource. I do. And I'm going to take care of this one. And the way that he does that is through the work, his finished and completed work on the cross. Now, when I use that framework, that language here, most of us, you know, we've been around the church long enough. We've, we've heard that. Christ finished, you know, perfect and completed uh, work on the cross, right? What does that mean, though? A lot of people think, well, Jesus showed sacrificial love, went on the cross and died. And because he showed that sacrificial love and went on the cross and died, now I can have salvation. It's like that simple in people's minds. And that's actually a really short-sighted view of what was accomplished on that cross. It's so much more than just sacrificial love. It is sacrificial love. It's so much more than just his example of what it looks like to die for another and live sacrificially. It is that, but it's so much more. It's a miraculous occurrence that happens on that cross. And it's not just through him going on the cross. It's not just by him sacrificing his life. It's by him literally dying on that cross, shedding his blood. And that blood that's being shed is accomplishing something that only the blood of Jesus can accomplish. It's a miracle. And what I'm talking about is this, again, kind of a theological ter term, this idea of atonement. Now, we taught this in the logic, uh, in our Loving Logic series back in uh, uh, September as well. Uh, this is called the logic of sin, if you were to go back and, and look for more understanding about atonement. But in essence, what atonement is, is this Hebrew word kafar that means to cover, 
to purge or to make reconciliation. And so Jesus' blood covers our sin, purges us of sin, and makes reconciliation between us and the Father so that we can actually have wholeness in our relationship with God once more, like we did in the garden before the fall. In Leviticus chapter 17, we see the original system that God laid out, not with an intent for this to be the end-all, be-all, but to, to point to the one that would come, the law. And in Leviticus 17, it says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. It is the blood of the bulls, of the goats, of the lambs, of the birds, the whatever it was that was called for, for that specific sacrifice, for that specific sin. It was the blood that atoned or covered or purged or made reconciliation. It was in the blood. And it wasn't just symbolic. It was supernatural. And this is messy for some people. Like, the progressive world right now doesn't really want to hear about a God that chose to use blood as his means of grace. And, and the temptation is to try to justify another means by which God would have done this in the Bible. And what we have to do is actually deconstruct the entire biblical theology that is clearly laid out throughout the Bible in order to come up with another explanation for why God did this. We can't get away from the blood of Jesus. And Hebrews 9 in the New Testament, it's not just the Old Testament law, Hebrews 9 in the New Testament affirms this. How much more than those bulls, goats, birds, etc. How much more will the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, unblemished, spotless, perfect, how much more will the blood of Jesus purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more will Jesus do it? This is a miraculous reality as Jesus' blood is shed. And God, in his great mercy and grace, chose to send his son Jesus to do this work on the cross, to come into the world, to live a sinless life, to be that unblemished sacrifice for your sin and mine so that he would be worthy on that cross to bear the weight of your sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could be healed and freed and forgiven. And so this is the greatest act of love in all the world, yes, but it's also the greatest act of mercy that's ever been displayed in the history of the world. And that brings us to the second way that we are saved. We have to receive his mercy. So you're in the courtroom. You know you deserve it. How many times I've been arrested, I'm like, yeah, I did it. Yeah, I did it. I did it. I'm going to have to pay for it. And you're in the courtroom. And, <clears throat> and you, you're standing before the judge. And the judge says, I know you did it. You know you did it. Your lawyer knows you did it. The prosecuting attorney knows you did it. The jury knows you did it. We literally have, like, pictures. We have, like, you confessed. You did it. <laughs> you did it. And then the judge still says, and even though you did it, and even though we all know, I'm going to offer you mercy. See, Mercy is deliverance from judgment, which we all deserve. And so the judge is ultimately saying, I should be rendering a judgment 
over your life that leads to consequence, but I'm going to deliver you from that judgment. And in God's courtroom, we believe that mercy can be defined as withholding from us our due consequences of sin, which is death. Ooh, told you it was going to be heavy. Our due consequence of sin, which is death. That's what Jesus in his great mercy, that's what the Father in his great mercy accomplished on the cross. It was in an offer of mercy so that Jesus would receive death so that we would not have to. It wasn't just a sacrificial symbolic thing. Literally, he is a replacement, a substitute for you so that you don't have to die eternally. He did in a moment but was resurrected to life so that he wouldn't obviously also remain dead. And now in him, in his mercy, we share in that resurrection. Paul in First Peter, or Peter in First Peter chapter 2 says, Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And I love this picture of mercy and this idea that we now receive mercy, how it's tied to once you were not God's people. But in mercy, now you are God's people. See, it's through God's mercy that he restores right relationship with us. Not just to him, even with one another. We're, we're joined together through the mercy of God. We are one faith family by the mercy of God. And we are sons and daughters by the mercy of God. Hebrews 4 says, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I I love what he's saying. He's saying, approach the bench. Come to the throne of grace, right? You ever heard a judge say, approach the bench? And you're trembling. He's saying, come confidently. Know my character. Know my plan. Know my promise. Come to the bench. Humble yourself. Acknowledge your brokenness. Acknowledge your need of my mercy. And now receive my mercy. This is incredible. This is amazing. It's a miracle. It's amazing. And we forget this sometimes. Ephesians chapter 2 says you were, this is, this is you, you want to talk about boasting in where you come from, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. Following the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, your condition, were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Take note. He said you were once sons of disobedience. I was once a son of disobedience. At that time, apart from Christ, apart from the mercy of God, I was not a son of God. And this is an important distinction because there's a lot of people that want to call everybody sons and daughters of God. Everybody is made in the image of God. Everybody is created by God. Not everybody is considered spiritually a son or daughter of God. Some people, unfortunately, and it breaks my heart to even have to say it, but it's truth are sons of disobedience, sons of wrath, daughters of wrath. I once was. That was my testimony. I was dead in my trespasses. Here's the the greater testimony. But God, but God being rich in what? Mercy. That wasn't, y'all aren't following along really, are you? Have I lost you? God being rich in what? Mercy. Mercy. Because of the great love 
with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Because he's rich in mercy. We were dead and now we're alive. Now, he said, by grace you've been saved. That brings us to the next part of how God saves us. We need to find his grace. Now, that judge, man, we've, we've, we're starting to, I'm starting to trust this judge, aren't I? Yeah, I like him. <laughs> he's, he's giving me mercy. I'm no longer trembling. I actually am like, wow, you're a pretty cool cat. I like you. And, and now he's like, you know what? You're going to like this even more. I want to invite you to my home. I want to invite you to my table. This is going to blow your mind, young man. But I'm actually also going to write your name into my will. You now have an inheritance in my household right next to my sons and daughters. My sons and daughters are okay with this. We already talked about it. We knew we were going to do this. Mercy is one thing. I now want to give you grace. See, grace can be defined as the, free, as the freely given, unmerited favor and love of God. And God, a righteous judge, not only is merciful, but then he invites us to his table. He invites us into his household. He makes us sons and daughters. He gives us an inheritance in the kingdom where every spiritual blessing is poured out on us. This is grace, y'all. And it's part of our experience as we're saved. Ephesians 2.8 says, by grace you've been saved through faith. We'll come back to faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work. So no one may boast. Paul doesn't want anybody to boast. That's who wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus. He says, don't boast in anything that you've ever done. You know why? Because you're not worthy. And I say that not flippantly, not arrogantly. I'm not worthy. In my own power, in my own strength, in my own flesh, in my own spirit, I am very unworthy. But God gives his grace by extending kindness to the unworthy. He's lovingly kind to even the unworthy. And he then even makes us, in his eyes, worthy because he clothes us in the righteousness of God in Christ. And so his grace and his mercy goes beyond our sin. It goes beyond our shame. It goes beyond our embarrassment. It goes beyond our weakness. It goes beyond all the things that would try to trip us up and entangle us and, and keep us from actually walking in confidence with God, believing that he's actually able to save us. His grace goes beyond all that. He says, no, put all that aside. I've dealt with that. I've got so much more for you. And you don't have to earn it. It's a gift. Doesn't that sound unbelievable? You know, the rational mind can't quantify this. Like, you can't process this. This doesn't make sense. It's not equitable. It's not, it's not fair. It's not any of the things that in our flesh we measure circumstances by, right? We're like, no, it should be this way. If this, then that. You do this and you get that in return. That's how we think about things, right? And he's like, no, you can't do anything. It's a free gift, It's hard to, to understand. It's hard to imagine. You know what it takes? It takes faith to understand that. It takes faith to believe this. And so four, we've got to believe by faith. And so we're at this party at the judge's house, right? <laughs> and now he's not a judge in our eyes. Now he's daddy. Now he, he's, I'm a son. I no longer look at, I don't have to look at him. And to, before I was his son, he was the judge. 
now I'm his son? Yeah, he'll judge my life in the end. But he's daddy, and I'm at the party, and we are having a good time. And there's no shame, and there's no embarrassment. But then all of a sudden, you see somebody. Because people do this sometimes, you know. But even, even the enemy of our souls does this. And he wouldn't be at the party, but put, puts that thought in our mind. No, you should be ashamed. No, you should be embarrassed. No, you, he, that judge hasn't dealt with that. He doesn't have the authority to deal with that. He's not loving enough. He's not powerful enough. No, you've still got that shame that you've got to deal with. You've got to figure that out on your own. And you start to feel like an imposter. And we wrestle with doubt. But God is calling us to have faith that everything that his word says about his power, his love, his capacity to extend mercy and grace and salvation to you is true. His promises are yes and amen. The calling of God on your life is irrevocable. And, and it's, it's something that, that we've got to believe by faith. And the wonderful thing is, is that that faith, not just the grace, but that faith is also a gift from God. He literally puts the seed of faith in your heart so that you can actually believe what is true that he says. Now, faith, according to the Oxford, Oxford Dictionary, is defined this way. It's complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Strong belief in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual conviction rather than proof. That's not a bad definition. Go ahead, Oxford. You got this. But I like the Bible and try to find some definitions that we can find in the Bible. Here's one. Hebrews 11, chapter 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So hope, right? Hope seems kind of like intangible. You're like, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen, right? I'm hoping it happens. No, hope is assured when hope is in faith. It's assured. And it says, not only assurance of the things hoped for, but the conviction of things not seen. So I'm, I'm just up here, you know, in my flesh-ish, you know, the spirit of God. I pray that he would speak through me, of course. But, but I'm a man delivering this message. The, the, the belief that you need to, to receive this message is unseen. That comes from God. And, and so what you're waiting on is conviction from the Holy Spirit that he would convict you, or more specifically that word means convince you that what I'm saying is true. And, and so faith that comes from God actually provides the ability for you to believe that. Skip down to verse 6 in chapter 11. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near the God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And we see that faith is not only necessary for salvation, but it's necessary to please God. And ultimately, it's necessary to access his presence and his promise. And it's a gift. And we do have free will. We can resist the offer. We can push the faith down and try to rationalize through all these things. And I'm, I'm an analyst. I can analyze faith right out the door. I don't know if you're like that or not, but it's, a, it's, it's tough sometimes. But his faith always abounds. And he always pours out a, faith me- a, a new measure of faith in those moments where doubt tries to creep in. If you'll just ask, God, would you give us more faith to believe this? Ask it. And receive. Knock, and the door shall be open to you. We taught that just a couple weeks ago. So as I said, God is instigating this in our lives. And he wants us to respond. In Romans chapter 10, it says, it shows what an appropriate response might look like. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's a confession with your mouth, and 
believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so there's this question, like, do we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord? But it can't stop there. Because I can confess a lot of things. I can say all kinds of things. I could give you lip service all day long. I, you know, we could tell stories about what we do or don't believe. But it's what's really in our heart that's a truer reflection of what we do or don't believe. And so it's not just a confession that Jesus is Lord, but it's a belief in the core of your being, in the seat of your heart, that he was raised from the dead, meaning he is the Messiah, that he does have the authority to trample on sin and the grave, and that he is able to save and therefore is worthy of us following him. That's what makes him Lord. So do you confess with your mouth? Yeah, sure, great question, but do you believe in your heart? And, and that's where we want to be, is with a deep-seated belief so that we can receive his mercy, find his grace, and believe in faith. And that's where you're like, man, it's 11.10, we're just getting to this word justification. That's where justification comes in. That's what we titled this message for. Justification is a legal term meaning to declare a person righteous or just. Just, meaning not unjust, not against the law, in the law, right or righteous. And it's through the faith that we have in Christ Jesus and his perfect, completed work on the cross that we are made righteous. We become the righteousness of God in Christ. This is called justification. Romans 3 says, remember, I, I talked about this earlier, and we repeat the first part, and we think about the first part a lot, and we get stuck on this first part. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we walk, walk around defeated. And, and we tell everybody that because we want to make sure everybody knows you've fallen short. You, you have fallen short of the glory of God, and people do need to know that. If you don't know that you have sinned, you'll never know your need to repent from it. But there's more to this story. It continues all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This justification happens at the moment of salvation. Now I want to give you a quick little bookmark to remember what justification really means in the most simple terms. Justification, just as if it never happened. That judge no longer sees that criminal as a criminal. That judge now sees that former criminal who was once dead in his trespasses now sees that former criminal as a son or daughter just as if it never happened. We're justified. Our sins are forgiven in that moment when we're justified. We're made righteous in that moment when we're justified. And Romans chapter 5 says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace or shalom, wholeness, restoration, reconciliation, right order in our relationship with God through our Lord Christ Jesus. Our condition has been changed. If we want to live a life of fruitfulness in the Lord, if we want to live a life as a faithful disciple, we can't just do the right things. We have to be a right or righteous person, and that righteousness only comes through the justifying grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm going to jump over to Colossians chapter 1 real quick where Paul just perfectly articulates what happens when our condition is changed. 
He says, you who were once alienated, that means you were strangers, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, God, has now reconciled in his body, the body of Jesus Christ, the body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We have a holy God that couldn't be in the presence of an unholy people. And through the work of Jesus Christ, he literally makes us holy. This is a changed condition. We are blameless in the sight of God. This is incredible. We were once alienated from God, but now we are adopted into the family of God. We are now children of God. And that's why the scripture says that he has given us our, a spirit to seal our salvation that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. There should be a cry in all of our hearts. God, you are Father. You are no longer judge in my eyes. You are no longer judge in my life. You may judge my deeds in the end, but you are Father, and you're a good Father, and you're loving and you're merciful, and you're gracious, and I rest in that. That's the good news of, of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, and it's all because of the great love with which he loved us. He loves you. Yeah, sure, you might still even be in the category of sinner. You might still even be in the category of alienated from God in this very moment, but you need to know that he loved you even while you were still sinner. And you need to know that he sent his son Jesus even while you were still lost, even while you were still an enemy of the cross. He sent his son Jesus out of love, and now he's calling you to receive that love. And what that love brings with it is restoration. It brings freedom. It brings his mercy, his grace. It brings healing and deliverance. It brings joy. It brings strength, even in your weakness. It brings all of these things that you can't fabricate on your own, that only the Spirit of God in you can produce. And we're taught to remember this. And so some of you walked in. I hope all of you have your communion elements. Uh, what that is is a little juice cup. If you're unfamiliar with that language, it's a little juice cup with a cracker on top. Symbolic in one way, very powerful in another. If you don't have one of those, do you mind raising your hand? We've got some people that are going to make sure that you get one in your hand. A little cup with juice and cracker. And I want to talk to you about communion while that's going on. Communion was what Christ instructed his people to do at the Last Supper before he was going on the cross. And he had already taught them everything that I just taught you. They already heard these things. And... And now he's saying, so my body is going to be bruised for you. My blood is going to be shed for you. And I'm showing you what it means now to remember me in faith. To partake in the Lord's Supper, in this communion, by eating of the bread and drinking of the cup. And so that's what you have in your hands right now. These are the elements that Jesus literally passed around to his disciples the night before he suffered for you. He said, remember me. And so we're going to go back into this song here in just a moment called The Passion. It's about the passion of Christ, what he accomplished on the cross on your behalf, on my behalf. And you're going to have an opportunity by yourself or maybe with your family or, or maybe, maybe with a group of people around you, whatever that looks like for you, to get quiet before God and, and, and remember his faithfulness to you and eat and drink of the, the bread and the cup of the new covenant, his new promise that Everything that you could ever need from God has already been satisfied 
on the cross. That's what you're remembering. And so one more thing about communion is we want to take it soberly. That means like we want to be like circumspect and sincere. Like do I have sin in my heart? Do I have rebellion in my heart? Am I, am I currently disobeying God? Is there something I've, that's unresolved in me? Because if there is, I want to advise you, if you're not prepared to let go of that thing, to abstain from taking communion. The scripture clearly shows us that if we take it in an unworthy manner, it can be very dangerous for your soul. And, and so we want to take it in a worthy manner. And that worthy manner comes through confession. Lord, this is where I'm sinning. This is what you're convicting me of. This is what I'm struggling with. I want to be right with you before I eat and drink. Don't eat and drink just because the person next to you is eating and drinking. If you're not in a spot with God to eat and drink, I re- look, I came to church one time before I knew Christ, and I knew that ain't for me. <laughs> Amen. And, and, and so don't unless you want to be right with God, and then you can just repent. You can confess. And as a matter of fact, for the, some of the, you that have never even known Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to just be right with God in salvation. So that you can participate in this moment where we take communion together, where we eat and drink of the body and the blood of Jesus. Symbolically, but he supernaturally manifests his grace in our lives as we remember and we eat and we drink. And it's going to be a sweet time. Amen. So I'm going to pray and then we'll eat and drink as we worship. Father, we come before you. God, for those those people that are in this room right now that had never believed these things until today that you're putting in their hearts a seed of faith so that they can believe and receive your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness, your salvation, that they might be justified before the living God. God, if there's people in this room right now, God, would you stir their hearts and cause them to cry out, Abba, Father, make them born again by your Holy Spirit. Let the confession on their mouth be from a sincere belief in their hearts that you are Lord, that you are risen. As a matter of fact, if that's you in this room right now and, and you just, you realize I, I have not known God, I've not known his salvation, and you want to know his salvation, it's very simple. It's pray a prayer like this, God, please forgive me. I receive your grace. I receive your mercy. I receive your forgiveness. I thank you for it, and I worship you. Help me to live my life for you for the remainder of my days. For you are worthy in Jesus' name. I thank you for salvation. Amen. And for all of us now, those that just prayed that prayer and and the rest of us in this room, Lord, God, would you seek, search out our hearts and show us anything in them that is unpleasing to you. Let us be sober as we approach the throne of grace with confidence knowing that you are a good God who loves us, who cares for us, that wants to be present in this moment with us, Lord, but that we would just turn from any of those those sinful ways, turn from the the pride of our life, from the lust of our flesh, from the the lust of our eyes, Lord, that we turn from those things, Lord, and we lean into you today, and that we would receive these means of grace and faith, and that you will be magnified in our hearts, and that we will rejoice, God, with a holy rejoicing, that we will lift up a holy song, Father, for you are worthy. God, that we would be overjoyed for the passion of Christ and and that we would worship you as a response to the finished and completed work on the cross of Jesus. God, we, we surrender now as we eat and drink in Jesus' name. Amen.